0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Well, I'm glad you've joined me for this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and at last today after threatening you with two weeks that I was gonna talk about William Blackstone and his commentaries on the law of England, I'm going to do it. But, there's always a but, isn't there? I wanna begin with scripture. Uh, That's always a good place for Christians to start when they think about something. And why I wanna start there is because I was saying last week, if the Western legal tradition is gonna be restored, we're going to have to find beauty in the law, okay? That mere moralistic truth can be easily rationalized uh, to give way when times are hard, but when we see something beautiful, it's hard to rationalize away the objective beauty of something that we see. It's it's more than truth. It's I don't want to say it's better than truth, but it's its truth as it's finally been grasped. And I said, we're gonna have to do that about law and come to love the law as the psalmist did, as it was said of the Messiah. The law was written in his heart, that's where his affections were. And we don't have much of an affection for law. But I noted also that this meant we were going to have to have a cosmological revolution Because the cosmology, soteriology and eschatology that had ushered in the Western legal tradition had been supplanted by the United States Supreme Court in the final nail driven home in the Supreme Court's decision in Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015 when it says there is no given human nature out there and everyone has a liberty to define and express their identity. So, we're autonomous monads, we come into this world disconnected from anybody else, mothers, fathers, parents, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, and we have to decide our identity. And, and so, as you can see, that is an anti-biblical, spit in your face to God cosmology. Now, to get at a biblical cosmology related to law, I said, we have to appreciate that there is a person behind law. That law is not just something enacted that is what it is and it's foolish for us to ignore it. We often use those examples don't we? That well you know you can believe there's no moral law but you don't believe that when it comes to gravity you go on the third story of the building and jump off and you're going to break your legs. Yeah you know That sounds great, but it makes no sense to a people who have no cosmology by which there's a given human nature and there's any moral truths about human nature. They would just say, well, duh, everybody knows there's gravity, but not everybody knows that because you have certain body parts, that makes you necessarily a woman or a man, or that there's a real true meaning to marriage. Those are apples and oranges. So we're just whistling on by them, doing nothing. And so we need to realize that for the Christian, law has beauty to it because there's a God of beauty behind it. If we don't grasp that, we will look at law as cold, dry, uh, mechanistic, and just as, you know, same way the rest of the world does it, really. So I want to start with a couple of things in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 10 through 12 says this. God, it's referring to, hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens by his discretion. You see, there's a person behind that, a person who has power, but not just power, but wisdom. And he's exercised discretion in what he's doing. Now, I hate to say it, but the law of gravity may express some understanding of power but it exercises no discretion. It doesn't matter what it is, you drop, you know, an apple, a ball, or your shoe, it's going to fall. And it certainly has no wisdom about it. But the God who made the world made it according to His wisdom and His discretion. It says the same thing in Jeremiah fifty-one fifteen. He hath made the earth by His power, and hath established the world by His wisdom, and hath stretched out the heavens by his understanding. So when we begin to look at creation and what's taking place in creation, we ought to say it is theomorphic. It is telling us something about God, the wisdom and the power and the understanding of God. Okay? Now, Herman Bavink, our good friend who wrote his Reformed Dogmatics in volume two, dealing with God and creation, speaks about providence and uh, a word I grew up not hearing very much about, heard about the sovereignty of God, but not the providence of God. But what he says in this section though, really pertains to this idea of how God has created things and the law of creation. He says this, creation was aimed at providence. Creation conferred on creatures the kind of existence that can be brought to development in and by providence. So in other words, he made things that could have an eschatology, that by his providence could be directed towards a final end according to the law of their nature. And so he continues to say this, Every creature received a nature of its own, and with that nature an existence, a life, and a law Of its own. Just as the moral law was increated in the heart of Adam as the rule for his life, so all creatures carried in their own nature the principles and laws for their own development. On all creatures God conferred an order, a law that they do not violate. So when you're looking at nature, you're looking at the handiwork of God. In establishing a nature that, apart from sin, would be perfectly harmonious and never disordered. Now, in that regard, one of the favorite passages of Scripture I like to cite to folks interested in law is Isaiah twenty-eight, twenty-three through twenty-nine, and here's what the prophet says: "Give ear and hear my voice, listen." and hear my speech. Now, here's what he's going to say that God is saying. Does the plowman keep plying all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he's leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place, and the spelt in its place? And listen to this. For he, referring to God, instructs him, referring to the farmer, in right judgment. His God teaches him Isn't that wonderful to think about? That God said, look, I'm going to create these things with a nature of their own so I can teach you about how to farm, but more importantly, in your farming, to see me. Then he speaks on and goes on about not just how to plant the seed, but the development and harvesting and use of the seed for the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his horsemen." Then he says this, this also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. See, we look at our bodies now today and we say we don't have any given nature we have to deny the nature that's there to change it to say I can change my nature is to indicate there is a nature and there's a different nature. We're not seeing the wise counsel of God in the way he has made his cosmos. Now William Blackstone picks up on this and I want to go to this because to me he's just He's developing a cosmology that's rooted in the glory of God and saying, do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see the nature of law from this? So here's how he begins, section two, which is addressed to the nature of laws in general. That's what we're talking about. Not, you know, a specific law about, do you need to have a driver's license to vote or get on an airplane? But what's the nature of law? See, we we don't really have a nature of law anymore because there's no nature. There's no giver of a nature to anything. We just make it all up from scratch. But Blackstone says, no, that's not true. There's a nature to law. And so he picks up exactly where Isaiah was and he begins to teach his law students. Here's how he begins Law, in its most general and comprehensive sense, signifies a rule of action, it tells you what to have to do, and is applied indiscriminately to all kinds of action whether animate or inanimate, rational or irrational. Thus we say the laws of motion, of gravitation, of optics, or mechanics, as well as the law of nature and nations. Now we're going to look at that again a little bit later. But he goes on to say this, And it is the rule, law is the rule of action, which is prescribed by some superior, and which the inferior is bound to obey. But Blackstone continues, Thus when the supreme being, So, see, he can't speak of the nature of law without there being a reference to the supreme being. When the supreme being formed the universe and created matter out of nothing, he impressed certain principles upon that matter. Now, where would he get such a statement as that? Well, I would suggest Genesis 1.1. I would suggest the passage I read in Isaiah 28. So, Blackstone continues. He says, that he's not only impressed certain principles upon that matter, but it's, it's such that it can never depart from those and without which it would cease to be. So in other words, flowers require the sun and they require rain. You put them in a place where they get no sun and no rain, well, they can't develop according to the law of their nature and they cease to be. Blackstone now takes another step forward. The whole progress of plants, from the seed to the root, and from thence to the seed again, the method of animal nutrition, digestion, secretion, and all other branches of vital economy are not left to chance or the will of the creature itself, but are performed in a wondrous involuntary manner and guided by unerring rules laid down by the great creator. When those rules are out of whack in a body or in a plant, they die, they get sick, right? So those are unerring rules. Then he continues on. But laws, in their more confined sense, and in which it's our present business to consider them, denote the rules not of action in general, but of human action or conduct. That is, the precepts by which man the noblest of all sublunary beings, which means beings under the moon, you know, um, being, being something more than spiritual, a creature endowed with both reason and free will is commanded to make use of those faculties in the general regulation of his behavior. Okay? Then he says this, man, considered as a creature, must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator, for he is an entirely dependent being. A being independent of any other has no rule to pursue but such as he prescribes to himself. But a state of dependence will inevitably oblige the inferior to take the will of him on whom he depends as the rule of his conduct not indeed in every particular, but in all those wherein his dependence consists. Now, let me just flesh that out just a little bit. Again, think of the parent-child relationship. When you're five years old, you conform to the will of your parents in all points because at all points you're dependent on them, right? What are you gonna do? Tromp out of the house and get a job at five years of age and provide for yourself? Uh, Probably not. But what happens when you're 16 or you're 17? Or maybe if you're really an ordinary kid at 12 or 13, you don't see the parents as superior. You see yourself as perhaps superior, and you don't think that you're as dependent on them as they think you are, and so conflict arises. And sometimes what happens? The parents will throw the kid out of the house. Say, okay, you think you're not dependent on me in any regards? Have at it. Go ahead, prodigal son there you go. Now here's what's really uh, fascinating. He said did he not there, that that you must take on the rule of your conduct in all points in which your dependence consists. Okay? Then he says this, the principle therefore has more or less extent and effect in proportion as the superiority of the one and the dependence of the other is greater or less absolute or limited. See? That's just what I was talking about, right? And consequently As man depends absolutely upon his maker for everything, it is necessary that he should, in all points, conform to his maker's will. Now see, that's the problem that's happened in our society is that we no longer believe in a God, so there is no rule of action prescribed for me. I'm not dependent upon God in any particular and even within the Christian community, we don't believe much more than they believe. We believe that if we just have low taxes and less regulations, we will have economic prosperity regardless of whether the church is salt and light in the culture and the culture degenerates. And we're seeing that's not true. The wrath of God is currently being revealed to us from heaven against our all, our unrighteousness and I hope and pray he has not just completely given us over. If you want to believe the wrath of God is revealed from heaven only by fire and brimstone, then feel free to go ahead and believe that. Now, sorry, I got sidetracked there a little bit. Let me come back to Blackstone. What he's just been talking about here, that there is a law pertaining to man's nature, and again, remember we don't believe there's any human nature, That's why I said we have to have a cosmological revolution. If we don't, then we're arguing on the same terms as the rest of the world, and we've talked about that. We're we're using their frame of reference to make our legal arguments, and Christian organizations do that. So we're going to have to have this cosmological revolution, which makes us, again, creatures, and God is the creator, the superior, and that we are wholly dependent upon him. And what Blackstone says is this will of his maker is called the law of nature. Now, let me go ahead now and describe how Blackstone describes this law of nature. He says, For as God, when he created matter and endued it with a principle of mobility, established certain rules for the perpetual direction of that motion. Okay, So, when he created man and endued him with free will to conduct himself in all parts of his life, he laid down certain immutable laws of human nature, Whereby that free will is in some degree regulated and restrained, and this is important now, and gave him also the faculty of reason, to discover the purport of those laws. Now here's where we can easily get into trouble. Man thinks that reason alone gives us what we need to know what's true and right and just. Well. Blackstone is saying, yes, he's given us reason to help us discover those laws, but he says, uh, there's a problem there, okay? And this is the problem. If the discovery of these first principles of law of nature depended only upon the due exertion of right reason and could not otherwise be obtained than by a chain of metaphysical disquisitions, man would have wanted some inducement to have quickened their inquiries and the greater part of the world would have rested content in a mental indolence and ignorance, its inseparable companion. As therefore, the Creator is being not only of infinite power, remember what Jeremiah said, but also wisdom, remember what Jeremiah said, and also of infinite goodness, he's been pleased so to contrive the Constitution and the frame of humanity that we should want no other prompter to inquire after and pursue the rule of right, but only our own self-love, that universal principle of action. For he is so intimately connected, so inseparably interwoven the laws of eternal justice with the happiness of each person, that the latter cannot be obtained but by observing the former. And if the former be punctually obeyed, it cannot but induce the latter." So, again, what is he saying here? He said, God made man upright. That's in Ecclesiastes. But he's invented all kinds of perversions because of his sin. But that's how he's made us. And so what we do find, even the unrighteous, if they live consistent with biblical principles, which will not be a full compliance, as is true with us, and and their purpose and their obedience may not be to glorify God, but they'll find that life goes better with them. I'm always interested by the young people who find themselves with children out of wedlock and multiple marriages and all this, and they wonder why their life is so miserable. Well, maybe they should stop and think, is there a law to my nature that I'm ignoring? Why do those people over there who have committed to one another in marital relationships and all that, why why are they not going through all this stuff? See, that, that's what God was saying in Deuteronomy 6. He said, if you'll keep and obey this law, it'll be your wisdom in the sight of all the other people. They'll say, whoa, look how it's working out for them over there. Unfortunately, in the church today, we're not living much differently from the rest of the world, so they don't perhaps see much difference, right? Okay, but Blackstone didn't leave it with just this kind of Epicurean, you know, uh, drink but not too much, Drink to have a little happiness, but don't get drunk because then you'll be miserable. You know, that kind of, find the happy medium. Uh, No, he said, "We, we needed something else. And this is what he said. If our reason were always, as in our first ancestor before his transgression, clear and perfect, unruffled by passions, unclouded by prejudice, unimpaired by disease or intemperance, the task would be pleasant and easy. We should need no other guide but this. But every man now finds the contrary in his own experience, that his reason is corrupt and his understanding full of ignorance and error. I mean, have you ever done things that you thought were perfectly reasonable and later thought, what was I thinking? Yeah, we all have, I suspect. If we haven't, I'd like to meet you sometime. And so, Blackstone says, we we see in our own experience that reason is fallible, and thus he makes this comment. This has given manifold occasion for the benign interposition of divine providence, which in compassion to the frailty, the imperfection, and the blindness of human reason hath been pleased at sundry times in diverse manners. Reminds you a little bit of the opening words of Hebrews chapter 1, doesn't it? to discover and enforce its laws by an immediate and divine revelation. The doctrines thus delivered we called the revealed or divine law, and they are to be found only in the Holy Scriptures. These precepts, when revealed, are found upon comparison to be really a part of the original law of nature as they tend in all their consequences to man's felicity. But we're not from this to conclude that the knowledge of these truths was attainable by reason in its present corrupted state. See, that's what happened in the Enlightenment when he thought, oh, look, if we do certain things, this seems to work out. We don't really have to have God for this to work out. I mean, I have heard Christian legislators who have said, you know, I've, I just said it at the top of the podcast. A very well-known Christian member of Congress has said to me that, well, yes, you have prosperity if the government has certain policies as if God cannot intervene and say, I'm going to work against your policies. You can have all the policies you want, but I'm going to bring drought and bugs and too much rain and everything else, and I'm going to wipe you out. If you don't believe that happens, read the first chapter of Joel, where the bugs came in and completely destroyed him. (laughs) What's your government to do then? See, that's godless thinking among this Christian person in government. Oh, my because he doesn't understand how God's cosmos works and who's in charge of it and who controls it and guides it. So he goes on to say this. Not only are we not to conclude that these truths were attainable by reason in its present corrupted state, since we find that until they were revealed, they were hid from the wisdom of the ages But the revealed law is of infinitely more authenticity than that moral system which is framed by ethical writers and denominated the natural law. Now, what is he talking about here? With persons like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, the concept of natural law was altered. And the categories of cosmology and the fall were abandoned And natural law was dependent then upon the reason, the genius of each individual philosopher. And that's what we have today because we've lost the cosmology that grounds law and lost a soteriology that says that man's reason is imperfect. Now that's what distinguishes a Reformed lawyer from a Thomistic lawyer who says no, man's reason was not affected, only his supernatural aspects of his being were affected. So man's reason is sufficient and the Reformers would say no, it, it's not, it, it's a great tool. But we have to have the scripture as an auxiliary guide to make sure that our reason and our passions are in order. Okay? So, he goes on to say this. Upon these two foundations, the law of nature, which as we said earlier, was the law pertaining to human nature that God has circumscribed within certain boundaries, and the law of revelation depend all human laws. That is to say, no human laws should be suffered to contradict these. There, my friends, are the two foundations for law the law of the nature of what it means to be human in a cosmos that's governed by law, and the law of revelation. And when the laws of man conflict or are contrary, to the law of our nature and the law of the cosmos and inconsistent with what has been revealed to us to help us with the imperfection of our reason then our law will be unjust and that's where we are today and that's why we have to have a cosmological revolution if we want to see the Western legal tradition restored. But I hope in this that you have seen that law is one of those things that comes from God, comes through God, and is directed back to God. It's interwoven in all of his cosmos. And we see in the law of our nature, our creator. And when we see that, we cannot help but love the law and be grieved When we see the law perverted in a way that obscures and hides the truth of the glory of God. and Next week, we'll continue on this theme on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.